Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's Andre from Mental Health, and I'm here with Natalie, who's just given a keynote presentation here at the Refocus on Recovery Conference in Nottingham. Do you want to just introduce yourself, Natalie? Definitely. My name's Natalie, uh, Natalie Drewbold, and I work at the World Health Organization uh, in Geneva, so the headquarters in Geneva, uh, and I work in a team called the Mental Health Policy and Develop- uh, Service Development Team, and we have a, a major initiative called the WHO Quality Rights Initiative, which is what I was here to talk about during this conference. Yeah. So who who quality rights? What is that? So WHO quality rights is our initiative. It's basically our response to the terrible situation that people with um, psychosocial disabilities, but also people with intellectual disabilities and cognitive disabilities uh, are experiencing in terms of the the terrible rights violations that that, uh, are happening in many parts of the world. Um, So there's... um, so, um, you know, it's happening within the healthcare context. We're seeing services that really, you know, are failing people. They're not providing the types of services and supports that people want. We're seeing people being abused within services. We're seeing violence. We're seeing terrible neglect. And this is, you know, everywhere. We're not talking, uh, often people think that we're talking about low income countries when we're saying this. No, we're seeing abuses everywhere in low, middle and high income countries. Um, And so it's in response to that. It's also in response to the terrible uh, discrimination and the human rights violations that we also see uh, at the community level. So people uh, being discriminated against in terms of being able to get a job, having um, being able to finish their education, um, uh, sort of discrimination in the housing sector and so on. So basically, in a nutshell, quality rights was in a response to this situation and it's about um, promoting uh, rights and promoting access to uh, good quality mental health services and um, to promoting the rights of people with psychosocial, cognitive and intellectual disabilities. So tell us about the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and how that's relevant to your work. Okay, so the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities has been a real boon for our work, I have to say, because for the first time it, 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 was, um, it was adopted in 2006 and ratified with significant um, ratifications to make, make it come into force in 2008. And basically it gives us a framework for all of the work that we do in quality rights. The Convention is really important because it's setting out key obligations on countries uh, to respect, protect and fulfil the rights of persons with disabilities. Now, you could ask, why is it that we need a specific convention for persons with disabilities? Why don't uh, the other conventions within the UN system uh, work for those people? And in fact, it is because these don't work. You know, the, the, the rights of persons with disabilities are always being marginalised. And so it was the countries and civil society came together to say, no, we really, really need a convention that protects the rights of persons with disabilities. What's also great with this convention is it's also protecting the rights of people with uh, psychosocial disabilities, with cognitive disabilities, and with intellectual disabilities as well. So it's very broad in that sense. Um, it uh, And I would say some of the key rights that it has brought about are having huge implications in terms of mental health systems uh, around the world. So we have, and I mentioned in my talk, we have the right to legal capacity, which is basically saying that 
people with psychosocial disabilities have the right to decide on everything. So this is, goes against everything that all the systems in all the countries in all the world which say, well, no, we can restrict uh, people's decision-making capacity if we don't think that they... They, uh, if we think that they have to have treatment because, or if they are unsafe or if they're a danger to others and so on, we can you know, restrict them and we can treat them against their will and so on. So this article, Article 12, is saying, no, you can't. And it's saying that um, it's talking about treatment, but it's also t- talking beyond treatment as well. And so let me just cut in there, sure. so, just to be clear. So we're saying that, for example, somebody with psychosis who is sectioned and taken yeah. to a, uh, an inpatient unit and treated against their will, that can't happen now under this UN Convention? Under the UN Convention, under the the general comment one, so you have general comments that are explaining, that interpret the the Convention, and yes, that that is the case. um, But it's not sort of saying, okay, we abandon people to their fate, because built into Article 12 is also uh, clauses around supported decision-making. So this means that there is an obligation to support people, but it's really turned everything on its head. So it's saying we're not going to make decisions for people, but if people need support and help, we need to provide that support, whether that be a kind of formal support or a more informal support, having a network of people who the person trusts to support them in decision-making, that is what needs to be done. So it's really turning on its head guardianship, turning on its head substitute decision-making processes and so on. So that's one of the key rights within the convention that has huge implications in terms of uh, the mental health system and which governments everywhere are grappling with. Now, So let's just yes. be clear about how sure. that works. In terms, so UN conventions and governments and legislation. Yeah. So in the UK, for example, um, we currently have mental health legislation that says mm-hmm. you can section people and yes. treat them against their will. How, do, how does... Uh, local country legislation in the UK or in Mm -hmm. Ghana or in Russia relate to UN conventions? Okay, so um, when when a government ratifies uh, a convention, they are saying that they, however they choose to do it, and different countries do it differently, they are agreeing to saying we will implement these rights within our countries. Now, um, you know, it takes time and, you know, for sure countries are grappling with the idea of what are we saying that there's going to be no more mental health laws, are we going to repeal all our guardianship laws and so on. For sure it is not easy, What you know, it, it is a huge amount of work. What we've tried to do at WHO basically is instead of, there's been real resistance to this, there's been real blocks, people are saying no, it can't be done. We always need to use coercion. Coercion is just a part of the mental health system. We need to protect the population. We need to protect people from themselves. And what we're trying to say at WHO is let's look at what can be done because things are being done differently in different parts of the world. Um, we have examples across the world of, of services that are doing things without coercion, without you know really promoting people's autonomy. So we have... For example, we have the recovery approach, which is, again, turning, turning how we do things in the mental health practice on its head. We have um, supported decision-making, so that's what I'm saying. That you know, Supported decision-making actually existed. There were examples of it even before the convention talked about supported decision-making. So you have models in Sweden of the personal ombudsperson system, which is, which is supported decision-making instead of guardianship. 
Um, we have the circles of support in the UK, again, another sort of very nice example of how you can support people with a network of people that the person trusts. Um, so we have all of those things. We have advanced directives that enable people to really flesh out very, very clearly, should I be incapacitated in, in any way, this is what I want to happen. Um, you know, including what treatment I'm prepared to have, what treatment I'm not prepared to have, and I, I believe everyone should fill in advanced plans personally. Um, and then, you know, we've got examples, for example, in Pennsylvania, the, the whole state of Pennsylvania, all of their hospitals have stopped um, restraints, chemical seclusion, and, um, and physical seclusion and chemical seclusion completely since 2015. So, and also in our research looking at services that promote autonomy and recovery, we are seeing other excellent examples of people doing things differently. So what we're trying to say at WHO is let's not stop and say, no, this is just not possible. Let's look at what's out there. And in doing so, we've actually found incredible strategies, incredible approaches, incredible examples of services that are doing amazing things um, and that people want to use and that people go and seek out care at because it is really, really helping them. You know, you can't something needs to change you know people listening to people with lived experience they feel alienated by the services they feel a lack of trust with services and we have to change that and that's what we're trying to do with quality rights <laughs>